0: This is the Uncommon Sense Podcast for 3 FM with Amy Mullins. First up on the show, Ben Eltham from New Matilda joins me to go in-depth on the federal budget and Labor's budget reply. Then, writer Katerina Bryant delves into mental illness and bias in the medical system in her new book, Hysteria, a memoir of illness, strength and women's stories throughout history. Then, finally, Professor Brendan Wintle, conservation ecologist at the University of Melbourne and director of the Threatened Species Recovery Hub, joined me to talk about the ongoing bushfire recovery efforts to save threatened species, as well as recent positive case studies in conservation and the latest reports on global biodiversity loss. If any of these conversations brought up questions or concerns for you, speak with your medical practitioner or Lifeline on 13 11 14. And you are tuned in to Uncommon Sense on 3 FM with me, Amy Mullins, and I'm delighted to have with me Ben Eltham, who is the National Affairs Correspondent for New Matilda, and he joins me to talk about federal politics. Hey there, Ben.
1: Good morning, Amy. How are you?
0: Good morning. I'm doing pretty well after a nice weekend of riveting football um, which we were just talking about off air, weren't we?
1: Yeah, well done, you cats. <laughs> uh, you
0: know. I'm going to enjoy it while it lasts, which is not very long.
1: A crushing defeat of Collingwood is something we could all unite about.
0: It's funny because I, it's I got so many bandwagon fans and messages like before the game. It was so lovely, like so many friends messaging me saying, "Going good, good luck. I hope you win." And I was like, "This is this would not normally happen." If it was maybe any other team except perhaps Collingwood and Richmond.
1: <laughs> well, indeed. Indeed.
0: It unites so many people.
1: Uh, yeah, some some telling pictures of a sad Eddie Maguire in the stands of the Gabba.
0: <laughs> yeah, and the look on Nathan Buckley's face as well was pretty priceless.
1: Indeed, indeed.
0: Yes, but as we said, uh, Brisbane v Geelong next. Well, this week, gosh, we're already in this week.
1: Yeah, pretty excited, mate. Uh, yeah. First, uh, first prelim for a while for us.
0: It's a very momentous occasion.
1: Yeah. Um, but do you want to talk about politics?
0: Yeah, I guess we could do that. I think that's why you're here.
1: Uh, um, one of the reasons, yeah. We could do.
0: So one of the things I wanted to touch on before we get into the budget, because that will take up a lot of time, was something that's particularly controversial and that is the higher education changes particularly to funding that the coalition government has brought in and um, it's something that was announced a few months ago and when it was announced so many academics um, were rightfully angry as were students and um, it's something that many people have been advocating on it's not like people have um, taken this lying down and yet um, when it all came down to it we saw where the crossbenchers in the Senate decided to stand and Jackie Lambie ended up being against this bill and she was very, very strongly against it. If you watch the speech that she gave in the Senate against it, it was actually really quite an effective um, piece of rhetorical Uh, language. So, I think it's something worth watching if you are interested in this issue. But it was really quite sad to see that uh, people like the Centre Alliance's Rebecca Sharkey decided to vote for it, um, and also Rex Patrick, who uh, quit Centre Alliance in August to run as an independent. So, um, this now really has passed both houses. It's going to receive royal assent and be put into legislation if it hasn't already been um, happened. So what are your thoughts on that? How we, we've we actually kind of reached that end of the road um, for the bill, but of course that won't stop the activism from happening on campuses, presumably not Melbourne campuses, but um, but from students and academics across the country.
1: Yes, the bill has passed uh, with the vote of the Centre Alliance, uh, and that I think stores up quite a lot of trouble for for that minor party in South Australia down the track. But um, uh, with a, a few um, a few bribes for South Australian universities from the Morrison government, they've been able to pass the so called Job Ready Graduates Bill, uh, which is. Uh, you know, a deeply controversial piece of legislation. It reaches right down into the university system and adjusts the fees for really subject by subject uh, to make some subjects much more expensive for students. Um, Overall, it represents a funding cut to the sector, so there'll be less money going into universities from the federal government, uh, and students will pay higher fees. So, you know, on the whole, you know, you can see why academics and students were pretty upset about this bill going through, Um, But uh, we've got it now. Um, And I think you're right. I think it will set the seed for ongoing agitation and protest in the university system. Uh, It's been a devastating year for people working in higher education. There have been job cuts galore. There's been massive job shedding across the sector. and These are high-wage, high-skilled jobs, you know, people... Um, who've devoted their lives to scientific research, to the humanities, to teaching, um, who are suddenly being made redundant, really, as a result of federal government policy, uh, because the federal government has refused to bail out the universities or to give them any extra money or to let them be eligible for JobKeeper. Uh, And then they've driven through this funding cut um, to rubs salt into the wounds. So it's a difficult time for universities in Australia. Uh, there's no very good policy reason for it. I think it's basically just about the ideological proclivities of the coalition. Um, but be that as it may, we're stuck with it now. And I think I think this will, will lead to, you know, real unrest on our campuses in years to come. Um, uh, a lot of universities are now talking about uh, going on strike, um, you know, uh, Melbourne University talking about passing a vote of no confidence in their vice chancellor. Um, there's deep unrest about the neoliberal, corporatised nature of the modern university, um, and I think that's filtering through. So, um, you know, th- maybe you know, on the on the one hand, just a just another sort of day in the life of the Morrison government, but on the other hand, I think a sea change in Australian higher education policy, uh, a decision that we'll live with for years to come.
0: Mm, Exactly. Um, It was interesting to see last night when I think it was Connor Duffy was reporting about the vote of no confidence at Melbourne Uni um, that he received a clarification from the Melbourne University Student Union to say that they weren't in support of the vote of no confidence presumably for strategic reasons, because they're still trying to advocate for a number of things on behalf of students. Um, But we have seen that a whole group of different um, students and academics from various faculties across the university um, proposing that vote. So it is important that we are seeing advocacy and activism happening. Um, And it's something that also anecdotally has been interesting to watch online is that people have made comments about, you know, yes, we have um, great unions that's, that represent um, the tertiary sector, but how strong is the student movement across Australia when we need to be even stronger than ever before, particularly given the coalition's position on tertiary education, on climate change, on so many issues that are affecting young people. Um, It is an interesting time to reflect on the strength of student movements, student protests, and whether we need to regroup.
1: Yeah, I think a lot of it's being tamped down by the pandemic, but I I wonder what will happen in 2021 as uh, restrictions start to lift. Um, And as people are able to gather again in person and to protest in public again, I wonder whether uh, student protest might reignite. Um, There's been a long-term decline in student activism since the early 2000s. The Howard government made it a mission to smash the student unions, um, really for political reasons. And they were successful in that. They were effective in that. So there hasn't been much organised student politics, really, for more than a decade in Australia. Um, but that that's not to say it can't reignite. Mm,
0: at least a decade. Yeah, it's um, I remember that unions used to be compulsory, I think, to join, or was it, I think it was anyway yeah I do, that, yeah that was
1: the big change so in yeah. the old days um, it used you used to have to pay what was called a student services fee if you went to university it wasn't all well it was a lot of money for a student you know it was like um, 300 dollars a semester or something like that and it was compulsory for students to pay it and it went to the student unions so that of course funded you know student amenities and things like that it also funded student politics which is why the conservative side of politics hated it they eventually <laughs> got rid of that compulsory fee they turned it into a voluntary fee. Um, now, that had the effect really of uh, dramatically re- reducing the resources available to student organisations.
0: Well, it's um, it's interesting. The young Liberals never really seemed to win any seats or positions when there was a student election that came around, but there you go. Um, it's, it is interesting to watch how student politics has evolved or devolved over time. Uh, Ben, now let's talk a little bit about the federal budget um, and also Labor's budget reply, which I feel doesn't often get a whole lot of focus, but it is getting a little bit more focus at the moment because there's almost a bit of a campaign element to this budget and budget reply, particularly um, it seems that Labor has picked up on what so many people remarked upon on budget night, which was last Tuesday evening and that was that we are at a very important moment um, in the Australian economy and society, and uh, we're in recession. We've been going through a global pandemic um, of all times to make some significant changes that benefit the economy and uh, individuals and families. Now would be that time to, to make these changes when we're actually going to be spending more money as a government. We're going to be putting um, money into stimulating the economy. It's interesting always, and very um, critical, to watch where the government decides to put that money. So a lot of people remarked on that night that really the government decided to put that money into industries that were dominated by men, that were dominated by construction and infrastructure, Um, They were definitely not interested in increasing um, social services or social housing. Um, There were so many omissions and also decisions that were really quite notable, but it has since um, led to a number of women and men remark upon the fact that um, women who make up 51% of the population were all but forgotten.
1: Yeah, um, so I've got an article up at the website Jacobin at the moment about uh, the budget from last week. Uh, And the title of it is Josh Frydenberg's budget takes from the poor to give to the rich. Uh, And that's pretty much the take home message from the budget 2020. Uh, It's a massive upward redistribution of wealth to rich people. Um, And because Men tend to be the rich people in our society. Uh, It's particularly gender-biased budget as well. Uh, So the centerpiece of the budget was billions and billions of dollars given away to big business and also tax cuts, which skewed dramatically to the wealthy. So 88% of the tax cuts went to high-income earners. Uh, and there's, there's like massive amounts of money that's going to be going to someone on $150,000 a year. They're going to get something like four or five thousand dollars a year in tax cuts as a result of these. Um, whereas uh, middle-income earners uh, will get very little, um, and low-income earners will get nothing. Um, And, of course, then you've got about $31 billion being given to business in the form of uh, business charities like uh, investment write-offs, the loss carry-back provision, which is a handout for making profits in previous tax years. There's an investment allowance. There's a wage subsidy for apprentices. Again, that will largely skew male because the majority of apprentices in trades and construction are male. Um, so, uh, yeah, there's a, there's, and then what isn't there in the budget, there isn't much money for education, surprisingly not even that much for health or aged care, uh, and, you know, even a reduction in funding for homelessness services, no investment in social housing or anything like that. Uh, so it's very much a Liberal Party budget on steroids. Uh, it's a $214 billion deficit, by the way, and if you cast your mind back to the Rudd-Gillard years about how upset the Liberal Party was about the debt and deficit disaster. You'd think they'd be a little bit shamefaced about this deficit. But no, they're going all in and they're, they're borrowing that money from the international money markets and they're giving it to business in the hope that business will spend money and get Australia out of recession. But You know, the economists that I talk to are pretty worried about that. They think that the stimulus is not going to the right places. It's going to business instead of going to households and to ordinary citizens. And as a result, it's unlikely that um, the stimulus will actually get Australia out of recession.
0: Well, if it goes to business, how is that exactly going to head into the economy? Because a lot of people would suggest perhaps they'll keep it as profits.
1: That's exactly what I would suggest, Amy. (laughs) Uh, They will return it to their shareholders in the form of dividends. Um, the government believes that they'll take the money and they'll invest it. And by doing that, that will spread money around the economy and that will help. And I think some of that is true. Like some of the, the money will go into investment and some of it will stimulate. But how much is the question really here? Um, and when you consider that, like, compared to what business will do, which is give uh, at least a portion of that money back to, to shareholders, who may well will not spend it, they might just save it... Um, what they could have done was give it all to poor people who definitely would have spent it, um, and instead of that, there's nothing really to rate. There's no raise of the rate of job seeker, um, job keeper runs out in March as scheduled. Uh, so, it, it, you know, there's a there's a big drop off in all of the current stimulus payments that are going to ordinary people and to benefit recipients. um, And what they're replacing it with are all these handouts to business. Uh, And so there's an open question there whether that will actually lead to a pickup in the economy or not.
0: Mm. And when consumer spending and confidence has been low over the years, it hasn't even just recently been low, um, it's surprising to see that they have decided not to give tax cuts to people on low to medium incomes, that they've decided not to really give proper um, spending uh, allowances to people who would actually benefit from it right now in the midst of this pandemic. Um, And one of the other elements of this is that the government decided that they would hand out a couple of hundred dollars to those who've been on um, particular benefits and payments as a one-off payment. And it seems like this is, um, you know, quite true to form for the coalition, at least in this year, um, because we've seen them do that before a couple of times in this pandemic, is to say, oh, we'll chuck you a couple of hundred here and there. Um, you can go spend that on, you know, the bills that you already um, owe and uh, and that's all we're going to do for you. And that seems to be almost um, their version of tax cuts. It's It's there's your little payment and good luck to you.
1: Pretty much, yeah, that's right. There's two $250 special payments that go to pensioners and uh, welfare recipients. Uh, But that's a drop in the ocean compared to the tens of billions of dollars they're handing to high-income earners with these tax cuts. Uh, So uh, there's a a real skew there (laughs) towards the wealthy. Uh, But that, as you rightly point out, is uh, well and truly in line with Liberal Party ideology, which is about rewarding people for effort, as they say, or, in other words, giving tax cuts to high-income earners. So, um, you know, I think it's a a real concern, you know, certainly on equity grounds. um, You know, this is a disaster for inequality. You know, it'll make inequality worse. But also on macroeconomic grounds. So if you look at the budget papers and you look at the forecasts, for the economy out to 2023, 2024, the budget papers say that the unemployment rate will still be uh, 7% at the end of 2021 uh, and 6.5% into 2022. You know, that's long-term stagnation. I mean, that's a very high unemployment rate for years. And that's if everything goes right. You know, the, the budget papers assume that there'll be a vaccine that's widely available and rolled out next year. Um, and that we get over the, the pandemic, uh, you know, that's that's a very bold assumption, I would have thought, considering what we know about the difficulties of mass vaccination programs, um, and the fact that we don't have a vaccine yet uh, in October. So, you know, I, I I think it's a real concern where the economy is going. There's a fiscal cliff in March when JobKeeper finishes up. Um, and, and I think we're going to have a long grinding recession. And in fact, the government's own figures forecast a long grinding recession.
0: Yes. Well, actually, um, the Treasurer decided that they would be happy with that amount of unemployment. That was the figure that they would choose. It's not some kind of number that comes out at the end of a very long calculation. They've set it up to be that way.
1: Well, pretty much. I mean, you know, there's definitely been a decision here by the government that they're not going to go for full employment, that they're, they're happy with unemployment at 7 6% for years. Uh, you know, that's going to do terrible things to Australia's labour market. That's going to mean hundreds of thousands of people in long-term unemployment. Of course, wages are not going to increase with that many people out of work. Uh, so if wages aren't increasing, then ordinary people's pay packets aren't going up, which means they're unlikely to spend much. So it's hard to see how the economy can get out of the rut that it's got itself into. And, you know, where's the government's plan for some, you know, sunrise industries? You know, there's nothing, very little in there for renewable energy. There is a little bit for renewable energy. There's a little bit in there for infrastructure, but you look at the industries that employ a lot of Australians, you know, they're in services. They're not in capital infrastructure. Um, they're in industries like education, health, arts and recreation, hospitality. The government's done nothing for these industries. In fact, you know, in case of education, it's actually cut. So, uh, yeah, it's it's a real concern, I have to say.
0: Mm, Absolutely it is. And we did just briefly mention um, aged care and the budget has provided for $1.6 billion to create 23,000 packages over four years for home care places. Um, But for residential aged care, which are the, um, the places that we've been talking about that have had these coronavirus outbreaks and that they are regulated at the federal level, those particular settings have been really largely not addressed and also um, neither has the waiting list for those places. Um, and even for home care, if it was delivered um in one year, rather than over the four years, it would only reduce a 100,000-person-long waiting list by less than a quarter. So even when the government has done something, it's it kind of on the surface sounds good, but in practice, it's almost meaningless.
1: Yeah, it's a drop in the ocean, Amy. As you rightly point out, that the home care waiting list is over 100,000. This is funding for 24,000 places over four years. That's six thousand a year. <laughs> it's just mm. not going to touch the sides. Um, As we know, there's deep, deep entrenched problems in um, residential aged care. These are to do with the structure of the industry, which is about making profits out of old people rather than looking after them. Um, The government obviously is not going to do anything about that because it's ideologically committed to that structure. So, yeah, I mean, if you look at, you know, the most obvious area of the budget where they should have been trying to address glaring problems in Australia's social structure... Socioeconomic uh, socioeconomic structure. There's nothing there. It's more of the same.
0: Mm, exactly. Um, now, Ben, I want to go back to women because it will take us into Labor's budget reply. Um, we did see people make comments about that same four to five year um, timeframe because these are about the forward estimates. This is um, projecting into the future. It's what a, bu- a budget is often doing and um, apportioning these amounts over a number of years, not just one year. And um, although that obviously is subject to change depending on who's in government and if situations also change, uh, but we did see a number of journalists and women's advocates talk about the amount of money that had been put into issues that specifically have been affecting women, their welfare, their health, um, whether they are Safe in their homes, looking at things like domestic and family violence um, as being a major issue, and these are things that the coalition hasn't had a great track record of on um, in the past in terms of what they've been doing and whether they've been doing enough on these issues. Um, so on that, in that regard, it wasn't that surprising, but. On the other hand, it is. Um, We heard from Georgie Dent, for example, who I've had the pleasure of knowing for a number of years. Um, She said that uh, women have carried Australia through this pandemic and borne the brunt of the adverse financial and social implications of COVID-19, but get 0.0385% of the 600 billion plus spend. There's no way that's not shocking, but wait, there's more. And then she received a phone call from the prime minister's office specifically um, taking issue with her tweet, calling it um, that it had, quote, blatant factual inaccuracies and that, quote, nothing in the budget is gendered, unquote, in their view. And she said, to clarify, um, over five years there's only $240 million that is targeted money for women in this budget. So a lot of people were interested in the fact that the Prime Minister's office decided to even pick up the phone and dispute a tweet um, that, you know, perhaps they were a little bit touchy about it, but also that it was um, inappropriate or, or just not even useful but it also was quite illuminating to see that they thought that nothing in the budget was gendered and that was the exact point of everyone um, on budget night and after was that there should have been a gender lens.
1: Well I guess if you're a fish swimming in the sea you don't notice the water and that's probably the way in which the patriarchy works for the Morrison government. Uh, Yeah I mean that's a it is a very illuminating comment isn't it if they can't see the massive gender bias in this budget, then that's telling in and of itself. There was a tiny $240 million women's economic package as part of Frydenberg's budget. But of course, it pales into insignificance compared to the billions given to business and to rich men through those tax cuts. Um, and, you know, there's so little in this budget for child care uh, for- for uh, long-term unemployed women, for example. You know, um, one of the leading... Uh, ..one of the highest uh, rates of homelessness in this country are older women, you know, uh, and yet we, we had a cut to homelessness services. Uh, so pretty much on any dimension you look at it, the budget was anti-women. Um, and perhaps that's not surprising from a government composed of middle-aged men who are pretty comfortable in their kind of masculinity... Um, or perhaps even a little bit sensitive about their masculinity. Uh, you know, and then try to monster Georgina Dent for a tweet, I think, just shows the the level of um, the glass jaw that Morrison and his office have about criticism. Uh, you know, anyone who, who knows the work of Dent knows that she's been a long-term uh, journalist and analyst covering these issues. She knows what she's talking about. Uh, and so I think they picked a very poor target there to pick on. Yeah.
0: Exactly. She's very well known in the women's movement and um, has worked at Women's Agenda since it actually started um, with Angela Priestley. That's right. She was
1: the founding editor of Women's Agenda, wasn't she? Absolutely.
0: Yep. I've had the pleasure of working with her on many projects that we've advocated on um, relating to women and it's great to see that she has been advocating on childcare in her new role, and that is one of the centrepieces of the Labor, of Labor's budget reply. And it's interesting, it seems like Labor decided, and it's hard to know whether they kind of just boosted the women element in their reply or they were picking up on the zeitgeist, um, but we did see... Oh, Anthony Albanese, in his speech and budget reply, announced that Labor would increase the maximum childcare subsidy from 85 to 90 percent, and to remove the annual cap on subsidies for families earning more than 189,390 dollars a year. And um, this means that families were uh, who were earning up to 80,000 dollars would have their subsidy increased by 5%, and most of those families earning more than that would have their subsidy increased slightly. So, I mean, it's not necessarily visionary, um, but it is way more than what the coalition has proposed.
1: Yeah, it's uh, it's positive incremental reform, which is sort of the best we get from Labor these days. You know, I think they missed an opportunity there. Remember there was a period there for a couple of months this year where we had free childcare? And everyone oh, I do was- remember that. Yeah, Yeah, I also remember that being the parent of a a two-year-old child. Um, Look, you know, we can do it. We can have free childcare in this country. We can have free education in this country. What we need are some politicians with some vision. And I think Labor missed an opportunity there to announce a policy for free or, you know, largely free childcare. Perhaps they could have made it free up to a certain means test for, you know, household incomes. Uh, it's such a massive issue, you know. Uh, it, it's such a, a huge curb on women's participation in the workforce. It's also just a, a, a huge part of what a civilised society needs to be, is to, looking, to look after young children. So, I mean, there's so many levels on which uh, childcare is a critical policy, and... Uh, and you know I think what was so interesting about that little moment of our kind of coronavirus welfare state there was how quickly the coalition decided to get rid of it you know something about the idea of free childcare clearly made them deeply uncomfortable and free childcare was the very first part of the stimulus that the Morrison government wound back it was like they they picked out free childcare as as the the very first policy that they were going to get rid of because they mm. just felt that it was there's something about it clearly disturbed them. I think.
0: Well, I <laughs> and, mean, those women, you know, you've got to keep them at home, don't you?
1: So, well, I think there's a there's an obvious gender aspect to it as well, but I also think j- that just the idea of governments giving away free services to citizens uh, <laughs> re- really worries the Liberal Party. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Oh, on so many levels. It's very pleasing, though, to hear it when you say it out loud. Um, Yeah, it it was disappointing also for a lot of women um, because when Labor talks about this budget not representing women, not focusing on um, women, the first thing they think about is childcare, and I guess, um, yes, it absolutely is a huge driver of women's workforce participation and should be a key part of any policy platform, but childcare is not solely about women. It's about women and men and families of all types yeah, of households. it's about parents. Exactly, any parent, um, whether they're in any type of um, relationship or and household. And carers.
1: Yeah. Exactly.
0: So so I guess the point that some women were making and even particularly um, women who will never have children were making was that, um, you know, childcare is not the only thing that you can do to support women in the workforce, to support um, women to make them safe in their homes, to support women into retirement who now don't have um, a strong retirement income. Um, I guess that was another missed opportunity.
1: Oh, a massive missed opportunity. And, and now's a good time to mention the wage subsidy that the government's bringing in called JobMaker. Um, mm. You know, um, can't wait for Job Busher and Job JobCounterMaker as well. Um, I can't but, actually
0: keep across all the different oh, ones because it's they're ridiculous.
1: It's actually ridiculous. Yeah. Um, but JobMaker is a wage subsidy that will be paid to people under the age of 35 to employers um, who put on our staff um, under that age, <clears throat> now people have already pointed out that there's a major problem here, and that it might incentivise employers to just get rid of older workers mm. um, and to put on younger workers. Um, there's plenty of unemployed younger workers, of course. So in that respect, it's a good policy. But if it um, if it negatively affects older workers in the workforce, then that's a disaster. Because, uh, as we know, particularly for women over the age of 50, um, it's very, very difficult right now. Uh, and, uh, you know, there's major... I mean, there's major gender problems in the, in the labour force, but there's also major ageism problems in the workforce where people who are older workers are just not seen as competent. They're not even given a look-in uh, for certain types of jobs. Employers just don't believe that they can do it. It's completely prejudiced and wrong. Um, But it's a major problem, Um, you know, and and that's absolutely going to affect older women. Um, You know, we've already talked about the problem of homelessness for older women. So there's so many socioeconomic problems here that the government's just, you know, completely blind to, basically refusing to even look at.
0: Mm. It will be interesting to see whether Labor do make a dent because of all times that they could, now would be the opportune time. Um, These are very much bald-faced decisions that they're making in full view um, and it's very hard to see that they could even really be intentionally trying to help anyone except their key constituencies.
1: I think it would be good for Labor to up the ante on opposition. You know, mm. they've played pretty nice. Even the budget reply speech by Albanese was, you know, there were some good moments in there and he, he landed a few punches. Um, but there's not a sense that Labor's really taking the fight up to Morrison much at the moment. It's tough in opposition, as we've talked about on this show. You know, it's hard it's hard to get media attention, Um the state government and the pandemic has sucked up a lot of the media attention, so that's been difficult. Um, but even so, you know, I think, like, it's time for Labor to, to raise the stakes a little bit because, um, you know, there's talk about Morrison going to an early election next year, so um, Labor will want to be on its game um, if it faces a 2021 election.
0: Mm. Yes, it's an interesting strategy to take and, um, yeah, it will be very, very interesting to keep watching this space. Ben, thanks for taking us through this budget and Labor's uh, budget reply in depth. And, of course, we've really just scratched the surface. If anyone could be bothered to read the budget papers, feel free. But I don't Uh, think you should put yourself through that torture.
1: Well, look, you know, I think I read the budget papers because that's just sort of part of my job. But, yeah, no. (laughs) <laughs> don't do it as a hobby. Don't, don't necessarily <laughs> don't do it as a hobby. Um, <laughs> there's some great analysis out there. Um, you know, Greg Jericho's written a couple of good articles in The Guardian. Mm. Uh, Michael Yander's written some good pieces for the ABC. Um, but, you know, what you need to know, I think, is pretty straightforward. Uh, as we've talked about, you know, this is this is major handouts to, to the wealthy and to big business. And this is, I think, economic austerity uh, stored up for the future.
0: Yep. It is. Ben, thanks so much for joining us today and hope you have a great week. And uh, yes. Thanks, Amy. Shout again. Thanks so
1: much. Go those lines.
0: This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos, and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. And you are tuned in to Uncommon Sense on 3 Triple R FM with me, Amy Mullins. And it's my absolute pleasure to now welcome to the show, Katerina Bryant, who is a writer and she has written a beautiful memoir and it's called Hysteria, a memoir of illness, strength and women's stories throughout history. And Katerina is based over in South Australia and is very kindly joining me. Over the internet. Hi there, Caterina. Hi, Amy. It's so wonderful to have you on the show. And uh, how are you doing at the moment? Good, thanks. How are you? I'm going pretty well. So many people in Victoria are getting a little bit frustrated with all the lockdown restrictions, but we're making it through. And a little bit jealous of the people over in other states. So yeah, hope you get to enjoy the beauty of spring. <laughs>
2: we're all thinking of you in Victoria and hoping for the best.
0: Thank you for that. That's it is really nice to hear. And it's your first book, so it's a huge momentous occasion, but it might be a little bit odd releasing a book and not doing the kind of usual travel around to the different studios go to the in-person book events. But how have you found releasing this memoir, which is so personal, and we will get into that content in just a sec, but how have you experienced that in such an, an, I guess, an odd time, you know, doing so many of these events online and and not in person?
2: For me, it's actually been quite fortunate because many of the people who I want to connect with with the book may not be able to go to events for reasons of being unwell or due to health concerns. So it's allowed me to reach and communicate directly with my audience and also it's allowed me to do more events and talk to more people as I'm over in South Australia and can't always uh, nip down to Melbourne. So it's worked out well in the context of living in and releasing a book in a pandemic, which is never ideal or a joyful time.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I feel like people in Melbourne particularly are in this constant state of tension and looking at the figures every day. But I I really do understand what you're saying about that accessibility of these events. And it's been so great to be able to engage with all of these thinkers, not just in Australia, but even overseas. All these academic conferences are all being held online and suddenly you can attend all of them and all these great um, international events with people as well, other different thinkers, they're all streaming these great discussions. And yeah, it feels like this is a great time to be having intellectual exchange.
2: Yeah, definitely. I was so happy to be able to witness the Melbourne Writers Festival from my own home and listen to one of my favourites, Elizabeth Strout, who lives in Massachusetts, I believe. So just the sharing of ideas, as you said, has been a really
0: positive part of having to be more online, It's great that there are silver linings. (laughs) It's always good to reflect on the positives. There are so many different points at which you could enter this book because as the subtitle suggests, it's a memoir, so it is very much personal, but it's also interweaving your story with the story of other women throughout history And it is really great the way that you've put it together and I can tell that you did so much research because it shows through the way that you've structured the book and interweaved all of these different reference points and ideas. So to give people an idea of where we're going to in terms of the content and the themes of this memoir, let's start with your personal story because then we can bring in the other women and draw out those connections. So as we were discussing off air, these experiences of illness can be quite Quite personal, and it's often difficult for other people to understand how we experience illness, especially when it is invisible. And of course, mental illness is by its nature often, but not always invisible. And I wanted to ask first up about how you've experienced mental illness yourself, particularly the ways that it has expressed itself in your life and how you've been experiencing it. There's a visible thing because you talk about the way that people do see how you experience it at times when it happens, but also how you experience it. And I was really interested in that because often people who experience mental illness might try to hide their experience and try to draw in and not show what's happening and sometimes they're able to do that and sometimes they're not and that was one really interesting tension that I wanted to understand better.
2: Yeah that's such a key part of understanding my own experience of illness is the tension between the visible and invisible And then as a result of that, the tension between being able to move through the world unnoticed or my body becoming hyper-visible and therefore stigmatised and politicised. So there's that really knotty relationship there. And as you said too, within that thinking about how illness presents itself within an individual This perhaps severity or perhaps the nature of the specific mental illness means that we are not always able to be invisible, even if we were to wish it. And what happens to those of us who cannot, I'll say conceal, but I'm not a fan, I guess, of that idea because it indicates shame and I don't think there is always shame within the experience. But those of us who cannot conceal aspects of our illness are often the ones who receive the most stigma.
0: Mm.
2: I'll talk a little bit about my own diagnosis, which I chart in the book. And there's always a little bit difficult to talk about because it is complex and there is not a real medical understanding, which means it's hard to explain but my illness of non-epileptic seizures sits kind of within the middle or the overlap or perhaps neither of neurology and psychiatry and it means that I experience seizures but this experience cannot be explained by looking at my brain. So there are opinions that it is neurological Um, but we just don't know enough about the brain yet. But there are a strong history, and I talk about it with the idea of hysteria, which if I had lived hundreds of years ago, that's what I would have been diagnosed with is the connection to mental illness. What I come to terms with in the book, that for me it doesn't matter what it is and it doesn't even matter why what I find is important and key is feeling at home within my body and learning how to live in a generous and peaceful way. And I do that through connecting with other women who've also been diagnosed with this illness throughout history.
0: Mm. Yeah, that's a really great way of saying it. And I think when you say the word conceal, it's true. I don't think it's possible to say that everyone would experience shame. But as you say, there's this level of stigma and also ableism that exists in society so that when you see difference of some kind, particularly if it's physical difference, but even you know mental illness and, and that exhibiting difference, people kind of respond in really surprising and kind of shocking ways at times for example if you were on crutches and you were struggling to shut your bag and someone came up to you and zipped up your bag for you without asking you'd be like well when was that ever appropriate to kind of just come up to a stranger and do you know what I mean like I feel like there are so many weird responses and sometimes really invasive responses that people can have when you exhibit a difference and they feel like they need to step in and do something
2: Definitely, and while I had been somewhat prepared for the stigma of being unwell in a public space, what I found the most unnerving was the interactions I had in medical appointments where I was not trusted to be able to speak to my own experience of living in my body in a way that they viewed as correct so while stigma in daily life is dangerous and unpleasant, I found that iteration of stigma the most damaging because it immediately impacted the care I was receiving.
0: Absolutely. That has real life impact. If someone won't trust your history the way that you have described how something is happening. It absolutely undermines what treatment you get, whether someone takes you seriously, whether they actively listen to you, whether they trust future ways of you recounting your story and what's happening with you. And it's something that has come up in previous conversations that I've had, particularly around women's experience of health issues and illness. And so, whether it's mental illness or physical illness, or obviously they're not often distinct, Mm -hmm. um, it seems like there is this really uh, gendered element to the way that health is delivered, even to the point where I was discussing with a doctor the other day and saying, well, women make up 50% of the population. Why isn't obstetrics and gynecology a mandatory component of study for all GPs? Why is that an elective? And the DP agreed with me. That's just one example of how there's this unconscious and conscious bias within the medical system, and yet when women highlight this, they're treated as being irrational or emotional.
2: Yeah, I think because the medical system was built to be a patriarchal structure, even now when we're seeing closer to gender parity of people practising medicine, those structures of patriarchy are upheld. And in addition to that, the intersections with class and race and the stigma around specific illnesses like mental illness means that care can be very much determined by who you are as an individual rather than we all receive equal care, which is our kind of understanding of a universal healthcare system in Australia. But unfortunately, in my experience, isn't
0: the reality. Let's bring in Freud. (laughs) I really can't stand Sigmund Freud, but he's so important to this book (laughs) and I I understand why you've used it because, you know, when you talk about hysteria, Freud is definitely right up there in terms of that word association and the gendered elements in his psychoanalytic theories. I did a sociology subject about gender and sexuality and we were talking about penis envy and all of his theories around the clitoris and I just literally couldn't yeah (laughs) validating him like that just killed me inside but um the way that Freud has talked about women particularly and medicalized some of their experiences and even sexualized, as you recount in this book, their experiences and infantilized them. It's so wrapped up in illness, mental illness, as you show, but also women's health, a range of illnesses. I was surprised to find out that even people who were likely to have actually had multiple sclerosis in you know, the 19th century were diagnosed with hysteria. And so there's this long history of discounting women and certainly Freud is a person who's shaped the way that we've looked at women and their psychology. So I guess I wanted to ask about Freud and he's not the only psychoanalyst you cite. There is a a woman, um, the first woman that you talk about, Edith, who's also practices psychoanalysis. So I wanted to ask about that and why it's so important to this book and your research into trying to understand what was happening with you and um, feel free to bring in Freud whenever it feels right. (laughs)
2: well Freud is important to mention in the book because his idea or rather interpretation of hysteria as an illness is what he called conversion disorder which he named because he believed that this illness converts feelings or instances of trauma into physical manifestations So that terminology, conversion disorder, still exists, I believe, in the latest DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, and we're up to the fifth edition. So we're still really relying on a lot of Freud's ideas around this concept of conversion disorder today, So I couldn't not talk about him, but I didn't want to have the touchstones of theory in this book be male. It was really important to me to draw out the women who experience these things, but at a certain point, how do you do that when all the women I talk about but one never wrote about themselves? So in the Katharina chapter, which is where I discuss Freud because Katharina was a case study of his, I try and look past or maybe through his lens to understand who she was. And through that I'm able to draw out little inconsistencies in how she behaves. He paints her as very young, and naive, for example, but she was not an actual patient of his. He was on a holiday and she approached him on a mountain, seeing that he'd written doctor in the logbook where he was staying. So that doesn't convey a naive woman to me. That conveys a woman who has a lot of tenacity and strength and desire to understand herself. So I try and look past Freud a little bit, but also acknowledge how he has shaped a lot of our thinking about illness.
0: Yes. Well, it's unavoidable. If you hadn't referenced him, you would have been wondering why. So (laughs) there's so many different kinds of tensions that exist in this space but that's another one is that hysteria and the historical understanding of that and how that has led into conversion disorder and how so many women particularly who exhibit neurological symptoms or issues can be labelled with that and whether or not it is that is another question and putting labels on certain people can be quite detrimental to them if it isn't actually that. So it's wrapped up in so much complexity. isn't it and you also say the word functional is another example this idea that there are things that happen within our biology that are organic and of course that means that they're valid and true and then there's the way that the medical profession describes non-organic things as being functional and somehow born of abnormality or born of the mind and not of the body and it's just so so problematic and really difficult for anyone who's caught up in it.
2: It definitely shifts the onus onto the person experiencing these symptoms as a way to almost blame them for their experience of illness and to not take responsibility, I think, as the medical profession should do to help. And as you say, I think for some of us, labels are really helpful for example when I think about how in adulthood I was given a diagnosis of OCD for my childhood that really helped me place some things and work some things out and that was a really profound experience for me but with this iteration of illness a label has not allowed me to find resolution it's more about the daily acts of care for myself and as you say I don't believe in there being a divide between mind and body I think the way we parcel different parts of our health out means that we don't ever receive holistic care
0: yeah and for doctors I think to treat a whole person and to realize that they have very whole lives that these people who are coming for help want that help and also want to have a fulfilling life and a productive life and one that makes them happy. So it just seems like that's something that can be quite missing is that holistic whole person view of someone instead of looking at their arm or looking at their brain or looking at their foot.
2: Mm. And without that view, it objectifies I suppose, us as a simple problem or collection of symptoms rather than a human being who can be trusted to explain their experience of their body and therefore should be listened to. Removing that element removes the kind of sense of humanity and therefore the need for respect within that medical interaction.
0: Absolutely. You are listening to my interview with Katerina Bryant, and we're talking about her debut book. It's called Hysteria, a memoir of illness, strength, and women's stories throughout history. And it's been released through New South Books. That was the first part of it. I'm going to now play the second part where we go into some of the problematic and unhelpful narratives that uh, society, the media, uh, multiple people perpetuate um, that are quite detrimental to people who experience illness um, of a range of kinds. And we think about some of the solutions. What can we actually do to change these narratives to make life um better for those people who are constantly confronted with these, um, these narratives that don't really fit with their experience. So do stick around. I'm just going to now play the second half with Katerina Bryant on her memoir Hysteria. I want to stick with Katharina while we were here because I found that story just so interesting and the way that you look at it in a critical way. And so when you're reading the case study, and as you say, um, this is kind of like an informal case study because it wasn't really rigorous. She wasn't actually a patient. She as you already recounted, came up to him, took her own initiative, said that her nerves weren't particularly good, which is something that so many women recounted as saying, you know, in the early 20th century and 19th century, it was this kind of idea of, oh, it's my nerves, um, which seems like such a kind of broad brush description of someone's experience. But there was, yeah, some interesting points that I wanted to ask about that were from that studies on hysteria, which was co authored with his mentor, Josef Brower, and um, it looks at the lives and treatments of five so-called hysterical patients. Presumably they were all women?
2: I believe so, Um, although while we think of hysteria as particularly gendered, during that time with Jean Chacot's neurology uh, hysteria wing, there were men there as well. So I wonder too how much while it is seen as a woman's illness and a woman's diagnosis, how much do we colour in the past with narratives we're used to, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, I mean there is the distortion of the time itself and then there's our distortions looking back.
2: Yeah, and sometimes I've noticed we're very quick to say that that Experience of history is gendered and rather sexist, as if today that is not the case, which it very much is. So, we almost color the past as something hurtful, I suppose, or something as causing harm without acknowledging that that is where we come from and we are living an extension of that. And while it may not be as overt it is still very much beating underneath every medical interaction.
0: Yes it's almost like it's denying the continuity that definitely exists.
2: Yeah and it also denies the strength and the kind of veracity of the lives those women lived during their time. It paints them as patients not People and it paints them as being a victim to their circumstances, which I'm sure those circumstances weren't easy. But one of the women in studies on hysteria, whose doctor said that he hoped she died to what he thought relieve her of her suffering. Then created one of the only women's groups for Jewish women that had no men within the group's structure. It was all women. So there's still a lot of activism and strength within that time.
0: I loved that story about Bertha Pappenheim. Mm. That was just really, really great to hear because it's so true. I think. What you've touched on and hit upon there is that to go through something so horrendous and to be treated with suspicion and almost like an object, the way that medical treatments at the time were conducted, it's denying the fact that these women had so much strength, had so much resilience. These women, like nearly all women across history who've done anything, have encountered patriarchy and sexism particularly overt, I guess, in the past. And to get through anything like that means that you've had to dig deeply, that you're not really getting the full picture when you're only painting them as these kind of childlike victims. As, as you say, you know, Freud's saying that she's naive and that part to me, I think, is really striking.
2: Yeah, and the same, I think, is true of Jean Charcot's hysteria wing where the women within that wing lived very interesting lives. It was a part of the saint Hospital in Paris that, as opposed to what was then called the asylum, these women were able to walk freely throughout the hospital grounds. Many had romantic relationships with their doctors, which, of course, I don't think is a good thing, but just illustrates how they were able to leverage their power within these circumstances and makes you rethink who was controlling and who was being controlled in all aspects in that it's murky and I think it's always been and continues to be murky, not to say that sexism did not profoundly affect these women's lives And it would have been ideal as it would be ideal now for those instances of sexism not to be within their medical care.
0: Yeah, it's the grey that exists. And I think it's a bit harder, as you say, when you're looking back through history and looking at these women who have been through a medical system, whether it was in France or Germany or elsewhere. As you say, you're not hearing from them directly and that is so difficult for any historian or any researcher when you don't get to hear someone's words, whether that's spoken or written, when they are constantly being reported to you through a medical and a male lens, you are having to constantly interpret and Yeah, you don't have this kind of unrivaled access to someone through their diaries, through their letters, through, you know, these things which we who study history hold so dear as like gold because it truly is. And um, of course, it has its own challenges. But there was one person who you did have some personal access to in a way, that kind of direct access. So maybe we could bring her in as well and talk about how you got to understand her. And uh, that was Edith. She was born in 1897 in Poland, but lived a lot of her life in Germany, in Munich and Berlin, and um, sounded like such an intellect and such a really, uh, as her dad said, an independent thinker, someone who had her own opinions. What did you discover about her?
2: I loved researching Edith because I think so much of her came across in the words she used to self describe. There's just so much life and fight there. So with Edith, she was a psychoanalyst in a time where it was not usual for women to be psychoanalysts. And she was also Jewish in a time in Germany where it was unfortunately dangerous to be so. She was fiercely left-wing and a part of her work That held that her entire life, which I particularly admire from her working in Germany to when she eventually escaped to New York, was that her fees were always incredibly low, so that anybody of any financial background could see her for regular treatment, which I think is just incredible. But she herself lived a very interesting life in that she spent some time in a Nazi women's prison and there she wrote about The idea of depersonalization, which is a symptom I experience as a part of my illness, but it's also a symptom that is quite common for all of us whether we're experiencing mental illness or not and it's that feeling of being outside of your own body and not recognizing yourself. I explain it most often as that feeling of outsideness in shock that would be experienced, say, in a car accident. So, Edith, while in prison, wrote about the women around her as experiencing depersonalization and a sense of self by being in this hyper traumatic circumstance. And she also wrote a lot of her own poetry throughout her entire life, which I was able to access through being in communication with the Library of Congress in the US and just see her handwritten poetry often on her pad of paper that had her letterhead, uh, like her psychoanalyst letterhead, written in messy scroll mix of German and English So she was an incredible person to look into her life because she determined a lot of her life through her kind of sheer will but also was able to write about her own life too
0: she also had that really interesting experience of witnessing depersonalization in that prison. So she, I guess, got to watch it at such a intensely close and also even in a prolonged sense because she was there for quite a while. But it was also really amazing to hear that she escaped somehow from Nazi Germany at the time and got to America eventually. And you write that she continued to live her life as a child-free, unmarried woman, all the while diligently writing. So it sounds like she was so driven in terms of her interest and passion for that area and that she was, I guess, a pioneering type of person.
2: Yeah, definitely. To continue to write papers while in prison just shows an unbelievable fortitude. And I might be projecting here as well, but I wrote a lot of my book as it was happening so I would come home for medical appointments and write and write through difficult experiences and tap into the joy of words through there so I can really see the power and drive of her in continuing to write and create. And it was my great joy to be able to print one of her poems within the book to share a little bit of how incredible she was.
0: Yeah, it's so great to read that. And it must have been amazing to see the the pictures or the scans of, of her actual handwritten documents. I can only imagine the excitement. <laughs> yes. I find that that's such a really great case study in a sense and a great chapter because when I was reading it, I don't think that's projecting too much because it seems like I can understand how you would relate given that, you know, I know that you're a a PhD candidate in creative writing and so writing is something that comes naturally, no doubt, to you, whereas others perhaps who are experiencing illness, maybe writing isn't the way that they're expressing or dealing with ideas that come up in their treatment. Maybe it's drawing or music or, you know, there's so many different ways that people can express their experiences and try to process their experiences. So I, I guess I can see why it would make a lot of sense to you being, A writer and having that great ability to put your words down.
2: I think, too, because of all of the women I've written about, there will always be a nature of projection because I feel as though I'm reaching for these people who I share so much with but cannot know. And I think that's okay. I think we see history as something that is one-sided and one-dimensional and we see historians as objective, but I think we cannot be objective. Freud definitely wasn't objective when he was writing about Katharina. We can only explain who we are and view the people we research about through our own lens and do the best we can within our own lens.
0: So, so true. I wanted to ask about part of that chapter as well, because you do describe numerous writers. One of them is Ernest Hemingway. Another is um, Jean-Paul Sartre, and they're both great writers that I admire personally. And Ernest Hemingway, the way that he describes depersonalization, I also agree with your assessment. It's literary, but and obviously I can't understand it from a very personal perspective, so only you could do that for us, but the way that you write out what he's described it as it hit me what it might be like to experience that and the, the way that it could be experienced. And maybe I'll read it out for people listening so they can get a sense of what we're talking about. You say that he wrote of a moment on the battlefield where he felt, quote, my soul or something coming right out of my body, like you'd pull a silk handkerchief out of a pocket by one corner. And then he goes on to say, writing that his soul, quote, flowed around and then came back and went in again. So the way that you said, he's showing how quickly it can be taken out, pulled out, you know, like the slip of silk against a pocket and then to come back in. And yeah, it just, it felt like a really great way of expressing something which seems so difficult to express to someone who hasn't experienced it.
2: Yeah, and the thing I love about that quote Is that his words show that there is no pain there? It's just a little bit uncanny, and you can almost feel the slip of the silk. It's beautiful and something I very much desire to do in my own writing is to create a sense of understanding even though this experience of my individual illness is very rare and then within my diagnosis, it's so individualised that nobody will have the exact same experience of it as I do. So how can we share what it's like? to be in our bodies and how can that create meaning for other people i've read people writing about their own illness like fiona writes the world was whole and while i don't share her diagnosis in parts i felt so understood and it made me look at myself in a different way that there was so much thoughtfulness and a weird perhaps joy of understanding there that her experiences shaped the way I looked at my own so there's a lot to be said for reading about how other people experience the world through illness and disability or through many other lenses
0: Mm, that's so so true because Yeah, I I really understand what you mean when you're saying that that it is so valuable. And even, I wonder, you know, from your perspective, having written a memoir focusing on when you first were having these symptoms, going through that experience of trying to find answers and looking for a why. Like, I, I know that's something that you bring up is you're wondering why is this happening? You know, I want an understanding so that I can fix it or sort it out or at least have a label so I can then get treatment for it and that's something which I think a lot of people grappling with any illness will feel is that why is this happening? I want to fix this. That story, that timeline, that journey that someone goes through from symptoms trying to get a diagnosis and I guess I wanted to ask about the fact that there isn't necessarily an ending mm. for people sometimes and, and, you know, I've spoken about chronic fatigue which is myalgic encephalomyelitis and I've spoken with people who have been um, experiencing some of the most severe symptoms of that and that, you know, in and of itself even if you got a diagnosis of that particular issue is not an ending. Do you know what Mm. I mean? It's something that people keep going through and even now have found out may not actually be what they have. There are other things that could be causing the symptoms they've got. So when you're in this uncertainty and when it's not so cut and dry, you know, when it's not like a black and white situation, when you don't have a journey that has a start, a middle and an end of, oh, I'm now recovered, how does that change you because you you kind of mentioned at the start of our conversation that you needed to find some kind of acceptance or to be really within yourself to to feel your own body and to find some kind of acceptance and I wanted to tease that out a bit and to understand how one deals with the fact that there isn't that really neat narrative that everyone wants and expects in a way because it provides some kind of comfort and certainty. Mm,
2: Yeah, this is one of my favourite things to talk about because it's so ingrained in how we view illness as a narrative and within that narrative structure there's always a resolution of recovery or less so death. But to exist with a chronic illness is something that's not often spoken of, even though it is quite a common experience. So how do we conceptualize something that's happening to us that has never been thought of as something unresolved? How do you live with something that's unresolved when the world you exist in tells you that you need to find an ending finances and go back to what you once were? It's something that took me such a long time and a lot of work to accept that this was a part of my experience, and this illness will continue to be my daily experience. And that's okay, there's nothing wrong with living in this way. The most difficult part is trying to adapt to a world that does not accept this narrative. And that was something I really wanted for the book was to show that we continue to live and there will not be a neat ending here except to find some kind of acceptance, which I will say is transitory and comes in waves. And if I, say, get a cold, I am infuriated because how dare I have a cold on top of my (laughs) daily experience of chronic illness and my resolve of acceptance wavers, and that's okay too. It allows you to reconsider what daily life should look like and what a joyful life should look like and how we can
0: navigate
2: the world when our bodies are seen as other.
0: Mm, Yeah, I can understand that. And I wonder whether that frustration can really ever go, because as you say, it's something that's transitory, that acceptance. And the narratives that are used in illness, like that one must fight and resist something, like Mm. there's an, an active war going on that needs to be strongly and defiantly fought by the person experiencing it. And if you don't win, you must not have tried hard enough or you must not have been optimistic enough or you must not have met the right holistic doctor or Mm. specialist or used the right medication. It's hard to ever come out of an experience like that a winner or coming out unscathed. I wonder going through this book and looking at that narrative and realising that it's just so completely not how it's experienced by so many people is there a language, is there a framework, is there something that needs to be brought into our parlance, into the way that even the medical system talks about illness and also the way media talks about illness? Because I remember sitting in a waiting room watching a morning TV show, which of course is not known to be particularly nuanced. <laughs> um, but We've <It's> the- <laughs> always played in waiting rooms, too. So I've seen way too much morning TV. <laughs> Exactly. It's in every health setting. Um, And yeah, I remember watching this young woman and she had experienced an eating disorder and the way that the media wanted to frame her experience as a story, you know, neat, tied in a bow type story, like someone experienced illness, they grappled with it they overcame it and now they're fully recovered and it's a happy ending. Mm. That does happen for some people, but it feels like it's setting an unrealistic expectation. And it also feels like it may actually distort the experiences of that person. I don't know. It may end up having this one narrative that we keep going back to in our public discussions and debates and reflections on illness. It feels like it may not only distort someone's experience but put them into constant conflict as you've already said like how do we have a different narrative that's acceptable because you say in the book that people are really uncomfortable with illness and we won't get like the golden idea or the solution here but I just feel like surely there has to be an answer there has to be a way that we can create language to create concepts that are more accurate that are more helpful than the ones that we've got
2: yeah, it's really interesting, these ideas about wanting to frame other people's experience within a narrative structure. I recently wrote a piece for The Guardian about how I've noticed a lot of people wish to frame my own experience of writing about illness as brave and how, in my opinion, that's a problematic idea because I don't see it as courageous writing my own story. It was mm. the simplest thing in the world for me and to frame it as brave when it was not in my own experience means that they are placing shame on me, this imagined shame I must have overcome to write my story. And I think brave and inspirational has been used to classify disabled people like myself for a long time when we are not doing anything particularly brave or inspiring. So in coming to terms with reframing this narrative structure, which is so ingrained in how we think about illness, I think the very smallest step forward is to try and introduce some kind of neutrality when we speak about other people's experience. So then we can listen to what their experience actually is. If we say we, for example, me, I experience non-epileptic seizures instead of I suffer from non-epileptic seizures, which many people have inserted that terminology and do so with a myriad of illnesses and disabilities, it frames my experience as one of suffering before I've even spoken, whereas there are hardships within my illness, but there's also a lot of funny moments and silly moments and moments of love between myself and my family and my dog. It's complex and nuanced, as all of our lives are, and to be neutral about how we describe an experience so we can really listen is a good first step, I think.
0: I couldn't agree more. (laughs) That's such a beautiful way of saying it. Katerina, I'm so grateful to you for your openness and the way that you've shared this great information, this beautiful research that you've done, and the way that you've weaved it together with your own experiences of mental illness is It is so valuable and something that I don't think I've really read in the way that it's been done here. So I'm really grateful to you for that. And I really hope that it does open people up to different ways of talking about chronic illness and also mental illness and to talk about it, as you say, in a way that is neutral and that enables people to hear and listen with openness and with non-judgment and to be open to receive whatever it is that is that person's experience instead of placing these oppressive artificial narratives onto people who, as you say, have rich, varied and fulfilling lives even if there is a lot of upheaval within them. Thank
2: you so much, Amy. It's been such a pleasure to talk to you and for you to engage with the book in such a compassionate way has been a real joy
0: for me. Oh, well, thank you. It's been my pleasure. And I'm sure many people listening as well. I've been speaking with Katerina Bryant, and we've just been talking about her new memoir, which is out through New South Books. And uh, I do recommend picking it up. As you can tell, this is a book for everyone. And, um, I'm sure that you'll be very intrigued to uh, read all about these brilliant women who are spoken of and um, shared through Katerina's book. It's called Hysteria A Memoir of Illness, Strength, and Women's Stories Throughout History. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up the Triple R website to find out how. And uh, I'm very very pleased to welcome back onto the show Professor Brendan Wintle, who is uh, a professor of conservation ecology at the University of Melbourne and he also is director of the Threatened Species Recovery Hub. And um, I have spoken to Brendan really across the years of this show, um, probably since the beginning, I would say. And, um, yeah, we've had a number of chats about a range of issues, but really what we've looked at um, at many in many chats has been global biodiversity loss, local biodiversity loss, threatened species um, across birds, mammals, reptiles, plants – Uh, There are so many areas to focus on and Brendan in his role at both of these institutions is very well placed and positioned to be able to know what's happening and um, to have that really big picture view. That's why it's always such a joy to chat with him and to hear from such a great advocate for science and conservation. So I welcome Brendan now, who is joining me via Skype. Thanks so much for coming back onto the show, Brendan.
3: Yeah, thanks, Amy. It's great to be here again. Um, it's always good to chat. And uh, hopefully today we can get past the loss. I mean, you know, we always have to indulge in a little bit of a chat about loss, don't we? But uh, yeah. but hopefully we can get past that and talk about some good conservation stories.
0: Yeah, we need to strike that balance. As um, we were talking off air, it's really important to to know what's happening, get a really realistic picture Uh, But then to also think about what the solutions are, how we can all work together to make change, particularly when governments are very slow, the machinery of government is slow. So whether or not a government believes in it or not, it can take a very long time. So that's why it's often left to universities, to um, NGOs, to private individuals, philanthropists and other groups to also pick up Um, the role of conservationist and um, to work together so I can't wait to chat about that but let's start with the realistic picture um, which you know it is pretty dire and I know we've talked about this a number of times and said that Um, but I really did appreciate a presentation that you gave Um, it's up on the Bush Heritage Victoria Australia sorry Bush Heritage Australia's YouTube channel Um, and it was looking at our role in the global extinction crisis. And um, you highlighted at the top of that presentation the fact that, you know, this isn't some kind of wishy-washy goal or aspiration that we haven't haven't laid out clearly. This is something that we do know. This is a problem we understand and that we've also set goals and targets to work towards, you know, up to a decade ago and before. Um, Mm. And these are things that we've done not only domestically, but on a global stage, Mm. particularly with the UN Sustainable Development Goals. So I did want to touch on that first to set the scene in terms of why we're talking about these things and that they're not a surprise. These aren't things that we're responding to as they happen in a reactive way. These are things that we have foreseen.
3: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and these are these are. Um, I guess we're talking about a report today. I guess that's what brought us back together today, Amy. The um, release of the Global Biodiversity Outlook report um, just about a week and a half ago. Uh, that is a report that happens every couple of years under the Convention on Biological Diversity, uh, and to report on outcomes. Uh, against promises that we've made, promises that we've made to uh, 192 signatory nations to the convention, promises we made to each other and to future generations about conserving uh, threatened species, ecosystems, and indeed the ecosystem services and benefits that nature provides to us uh, every day. And so, yeah, these are these are serious promises that we made. Um, I, I'll reflect First of all, on these uh, so-called HE targets, there's 20 of these targets that were um, set uh, in 2010. It was actually Minister Burke at the time, who was the Australian Environment Minister, who signed on uh, to this global compact, if you like. Uh, I think there was 140-odd signatories to the HE targets. Uh, And, you know, a couple of key things were promised. One of them was that we would... Uh, halt and reverse declines of all species threatened uh, by extinction uh, and that that would be done by 2020. And so obviously now's the time when we reflect on how well we're performing uh, against that particular target. And we also made other targets around you know, how much of the of the globe we should have under conservation reserve uh, and how we would conserve uh, the ecosystem services that underpin our lives.
0: Mm. Yes, and I was looking at the summary of these targets and whether or not we have uh, achieved any of them um, and I think really a lot of them are this target has not been achieved and then the best that I could see was that there were some where this target has partially been achieved. Mm. So there has been progress on some of these areas, um, but certainly not, you know, what we'd hoped for.
3: No, that's right. I think the blunt headline is of the 20 um, overarching targets, none have been achieved. Uh, This is through since uh, twenty. 10 to now so we signed on to these targets in 2010 uh, the idea was that uh, 2010 to 2020 was the decade of biodiversity unfortunately we may look back and call it the decade of biodiversity loss um, and none of the 20 targets have been achieved and look the targets range from if you like, Administrative things like countries will have strategic plans for conserving biodiversity. Uh, countries will try and reach uh, representative targets for areas conserved, and they were sort of between ten and seventeen percent, depending on whether we were in on land or in the oceans. Um, and in some cases, there's been partial progress towards these targets, but you know none of them have been totally achieved. Countries are quite good at at, uh, writing strategic plans, whether they actually implement them or not is another question. Uh, A lot of countries have done reasonably well in bringing conservation reserve targets up to the the 10% for oceans and the 17% for land. Uh, But the question, I guess, the problem that that remains is, well, you can have a park, but if it's not really well managed, or if you're not managing all the threats to that park, or indeed, if you're not doing anything about climate change, what's the state of that park? And is it degrading? And are the species that we're trying to protect through the designation of that park actually being protected? And that's really the nitty gritty targets. And those are uh, target uh, twelve, which is about the, the. Uh, avoidance of extinction and the, if you like, bending the curve on species extinction. And unfortunately, you know, the, the, the answer there is not really even partial progress. Yes, in some cases, we've been able to take particular species that would have gone extinct, like, um, you know, like um, burrowing betongs that were a, a, a cute, wonderful little uh, small mammal in Australia that we've stuck behind large fenced areas in Australia, the Australian wild. Wildlife Conservancy in particular have been incredibly um, instrumental in this and now of course we're seeing a rebounding in numbers because we've been able to put these into these really large landscape scale zoos if you like and and that's been great and we call that ex situ conservation for the most part and so in a number of cases we would have lost species but we've hung on to them because of these special efforts but for the most part species are declining. And there's a thing that we call a living planet index that tells us uh, on average, how are the abundance of species that are assessed doing across uh, the years? And the short answer there is that the average abundance of all of the 1600 species that have been assessed uh, across 72 thousand populations or something is that we've seen a 50 to 70 percent decline in the average abundance of those species so since I don't know how old you are Amy but since I was a kid uh, we've we've lost half on average of all of the animals and plants that are assessed using this living planet index which is kind of gobsmacking to me and and that sort of I guess backs up the uh, the recent. Global assessment by the Intergovernmental Platform for Biodiversity and Ecosystem Services that asserts that over one million species are currently at risk of extinction globally. So there mm-hmm. you go. There's our, um, you know, the bit that we had to get through Amy about uh, <laughs> about the uh, uh, the current picture. That's where we stand. You know, we are currently in the middle of a global extinction crisis. Australia is at the forefront. We've lost uh, 110 species officially uh, since European uh, occupation of Australia. Probably we've lost many more that we don't even really know about or didn't even know existed, or at least to Western science. Uh, and, And we have 1,800 species on our threatened species list in Australia that are, you know, facing a pretty rocky... Uh, near-term future with global change and the increase in the prevalence and and um, intensity of extreme events like the bushfires last summer.
0: Yes, I wish radio had facial expression thermometers or something because uh, yeah, I was I'm just staggered by what you've said, and I do follow this. So um, yeah, it really hits home when you say it. Um, you know, in such pure and clear terms, and. What is striking to me is that these are the species that have been assessed. And um, as we know, there are numerous insects, for example, that we don't even yet have names for or don't realise exist. Mm. Um, So, And that's the same for plants as well. Um, I know that so many different species that we thought were one have been, you know, five different species. (laughs) So (laughs) it's, it's one of those evolving areas, isn't it?
3: Yeah, that's, uh, excuse your pun, um, but yes, it is an evolving area. And, yeah. and it's um, it's probably worth pointing out that we've described uh, in, in, you know, in science terms, we've described about 1.7 million species across the planet. The estimates are that there's about 8.1 million species out there to be described once you start getting down into the insects and the algae. Um, and so, but you know, it's also still amazing that someone will just suddenly turn up with a new um, a new tree kangaroo or a new type of, um, you know, tree mammal in New Guinea that's only just been discovered to Western science. It's always important to add that because in many cases um, local uh, Indigenous people or just local people would have known about uh, the existence of these species, but they hadn't yet been described or, or indeed even um, you know, uh, recognised by, you know, some Western science geek who, who then suddenly reveals to us that we have this new species we didn't know we have. So so yes, we're constantly discovering new species. Unfortunately, we're often discovering new species with highly restricted ranges, probably small population sizes. So in many cases, we're discovering new species that are going onto the threatened species list and adding to this long list of, uh, of uh, species that we need to really focus on and and work hard to conserve.
0: Yes. Yeah, I'm glad you have provided insight into that because um, it is really important to realise that the way of uh, Western science and taxonomy and classification, that is something that we've done in recent times, but there are many other ways of doing science that existed Mm. before um, Europeans decided to colonise Australia. Mm. Um, I do want to pick up on one other I guess you could call it depressing because so many people (laughs) did find it depressing Um, over the summer holidays last summer before we were um, so much in the throes of this coronavirus pandemic. um, And that was the bushfires that we saw Across the country, really, there were so many locations that we did see affected, including, you know, Namadji, Um National Park in Canberra and also mm. in on Kangaroo Island. Um, and we've picked up on the metallic green carpenter bee on this show um, a few months ago, talking about that particular case. Mm. But there's also so many other species affected on the eastern side, looking over in Queensland, New South Wales and Victoria, and I know it was really front of mind for so many people here in Victoria given how much. Um, The bushfires did affect East Gippsland and up into New South Wales. As we know, um, these bushfires didn't respect state borders and Mm. um, it really was a very consistent scene up along that side of the coast. I did want to ask, given that our focus of the focus of our last conversation was about the bushfires Mm. um, and we were talking about how scientists and conservationists might assess the damage and then might be able to come up with plans for different species, particularly the species that were deemed to be um, possible to save, to, you know, be most likely um, to be effective in terms of when humans make interventions. So Mm. I did want to ask about that because, you know, some of the headlines that we saw um, in the mid-year was that nearly 3 billion animals were killed or displaced by the bushfire season of 2019 and 2020, um, and that there was estimates of about 143 million mammals, 180 million birds, 51 million frogs, and 2.5 billion reptiles being affected by the fires that burned across Australia. Mm. So, you know, given those headline figures that we've recently seen where do we stand in terms of how the scientific community approached these bushfires and how they've moved forward um, together and in Mm. collaborations to try and tackle some of these issues?
3: Oh, look, uh, yeah, really good and and challenging questions, Amy. Um, Absolutely, there were, uh, it, it was as we reported at the time, sort of unprecedented in its scale and intensity. Uh, And that, of course, creates its own type of problem where suddenly you're, uh, from a biodiversity conservation perspective, fighting on so many fronts. Uh, And there's the iconic species that take up a lot of our attention and that, that, that create uh, both tragic and wonderful stories. You know, we've recently, uh, I think I was on SBS the other day, talking about uh, these brush-tailed rock wallabies that were, you know, where the fire was actually threatening uh, their fenced conservation area. They really only exist in, in um, uh, or the bulk of the populations exist in fenced population areas and in one place in East Gippsland that was threatened but actually in the end not dramatically um Uh, Impacted by the fire, but they the fire was approaching Tidbinbilla Reserve, and they actually airlifted uh, these um, brush-tailed rock-wallabies, as well as a a couple of other threatened species, out of Tidbinbilla. Took them down to uh, the. The Mount Rothwell Conservation Reserve, just out of Melbourne, uh, not just north of Geelong, uh, and kept them there for a number of months until uh, they fixed up the fences and 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 sorted out uh, uh, the um, the feral predators that invaded into Tidbinbilla since uh, since the fires, and now they've been able to take them back. And so that's a good story of of where it's sort of the preemptive action in a sense, the fact that we had secure insurance populations of this species in multiple places meant that, you know, its chances were dramatically improved. And so that's a great story about how when we put our minds to it, uh, that was, you know, efforts of, of government scientists, efforts of private conservation people. Mount Rothwell's a private conservation reserve. Um, and and it's really, uh, you know, that's a really heartening story. But, of course, uh, you know, when you talk about the, the billions of, of reptiles and, and uh, insects and the like that were, that were impacted by the fires, that creates a, a broader, more general problem for us to deal with. We have to think about uh, how do we prioritise now those areas that are now crucial for the persistence of very many of those species that were perhaps impacted so much so that they're threatened with the extinction if we get another fire season like that last one sometime in the next four or five years. So so what can we do? And and that's where a lot of the work has been uh, with this, the sort of collaborations, I guess, between the scientific community, government and uh, large conservation organisations like WWF who are running a, a, a large East Coast fire recovery restoration program uh, that's that Based on funding that's come from a, a a large international philanthropy group that's set up here as 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 Restore Australia, so check it out on the web. Mm. Um, and there uh, and they've provided you know two hundred and seventy million dollars, um, somewhat putting some of our governments to shame, I have to yeah. say, in terms of um, you know funding to support strategic restoration and recovery from bushfires. So that's good. That gives us the opportunity to say, well, whereabouts. Can we restore? And whereabouts now must we protect to ensure that the next fire event isn't going to take out all these species that were impacted uh, so heavily by the first one? And so uh, that's a big, challenging question because we're talking about, I, I don't know if you remember, but the initial reports were that three to 400 of the species just on our threatened species list, uh, and that was just Uh, national list were impacted by the fires in a a dramatic way where they lost more than 10 or 20 percent of their range to the fires and of course we know that there were you know 150 or so that lost more like 70 or 80 percent of their range so now we have this question of well how can we deploy firefighting resources conservation resources and what do we need to do to minimize other impacts like logging and land clearing and urbanization to ensure that those species can stay in the game. And that's a big, challenging question. And I have to say I've been really pleased that um, there's been a really strong response of the scientific community working with uh, the Commonwealth government and the state governments to, to try and figure out these uh, these strategies. And it is probably something that I would note about the um, governments at both levels in in Victoria and the Commonwealth at the moment, they are willing to put in pretty significant resources to help support the science, to understand what we need to do in response to these emergencies. The big challenging thing is when will they start putting in the funding that's commensurate with the size of the problem to actually solve those big biodiversity problems. We, we think we need about $1.6 to $2 billion a year nationally to recover the species on our threatened species list. We currently uh, enjoy about a tenth to a twentieth of that level of funding nationally. So, you know, these are big questions that we need to grapple with.
0: Mm. Well, if we just removed um, some of the tax cuts to wealthy people and big business, we could afford
3: that quite easily. So, well, don't get me started. Um, <laughs> I, 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 I often talk about, uh, you know, the, the $40 billion a year we spend on defence um, mm. uh, compared to the $120 million a year we spend on threatened species conservation. Um, as a nation, uh I just happened to be looking at this last night. As a nation in 2017, we spent $12.2 billion on our pets. Uh, We spent $2.4 billion just on cats and cat care and $580 million just on pet grooming. So that's five times our national threatened species conservation budget we spend as a nation just on pet grooming. This is private money, not public money, obviously. Mm. But, it you know, it indicates where our priorities are and it also indicates that we've got the wealth to solve this problem if we want to.
0: Yes, we absolutely do. Um, I couldn't agree more. And it does put things into perspective uh, and reminds us that it's not just about relying on government to start to take action because, as we know, um, government is flawed in many ways and uh, although they do do some good things it um, is not perfect and there is a role for individuals and organizations at the community and private level Um, and i will get to that in just a minute but i wanted to tick off one other issue that we had brought up last time we spoke and we were talking about salvage logging which is a post-fire form of logging particularly in native forest and that had been slated to occur in east Gippsland for example and mm. it's one thing that we know is not supported by science as something to do and um native forest logging of course has been in the news for well all of this year <laughs> and before but not um for this decade. It, yeah exactly <laughs> but for a good reason in the sense that um, that we did see the Friends of Leadbeater's Possum win a case in the federal court and it's currently being appealed by Vic Forrest and so Environmental Justice Australia are seeking um, further funds from the community to uh, defend this court win. So mm. if anyone would like to support Environmental Justice Australia, um, they can do so. But mm. And I'll post a link to that. But I did want to ask about salvage logging because as you say land clearing is such a massive issue in Australia and logging and salvage logging is also a key state issue and and of course a federal issue um mm. in terms of you know regulating and policing it um mm. and I just wanted to understand where we were at in terms of that
3: look I uh, I think this is another case where there's been some good developments in government you might remember um what was it, late last year or was it early this year that um, the Victorian government uh, made a commitment to phasing out native forest harvesting uh, by 2030. This is, you know, obviously a good development. There's a lot of of time between now and 2030, so, you know, changes in governments and changes in position could well happen. But I think that articulates uh, a direction for Victoria, that is um, that I think is positive. Uh, I think we really need to move away from logging native forests that that really isn't supported by the community. A, a survey that was uh, published uh, last year uh, indicates that on average, seventy percent, between sixty and seventy percent of people across the whole community don't see forestry as an appropriate use of natural or native forests, 70%. So I'm really not sure why this is still an issue in society, why we're not still, you know, just immediately converting all of our public efforts, all of the funding that goes to um, Vic Forest and these organisations towards plantation timber. Um, It's a much better way to get our Paper pulp, uh, and you know, salvage logging is not um, is you know it's still happening. Um, Bunnings is not taking Vic Forest products at the moment. I think because of that pressure that we're putting on uh, all of the people uh, who are involved in in selling timber products. Uh, I think we're getting there, uh, but it is still disappointing to see log trucks rolling off into these um, burnt areas and and pulling out what would be incredibly important habitat over the next couple of decades for, pe- for for species that have been heavily impacted by the fires.
0: Yes because um, for anyone listening dead trees and hollowed out trees are very critical habitat for numerous species um, and hollows are, you know, a rare thing in mm. in any forest, and particularly becoming more and more rare. So, um, yeah, mm. it is so so vital, really.
3: Mm. And not just when they're standing up, you know, when mm. they fall down, they hollow out this this coarse woody debris on the uh, on the forest floor. I should I should change my language about that. This on-ground timber habitat <laughs> it's so <laughs> it's so crucial for, yeah. for uh, biodiversity and many of the species we're talking about now that are threatened. Uh, Post fire, the reptiles and and small mammals, long, long footed ban- uh, long footed potoroo's and and um, and southern brown bandicoots. But these species really need that complex ground level um, ecology f- to survive. And if you go in and strip out all of those um, big old burnt um, trees and logs, then you you're simplifying the ecosystem dramatically, and that's bad.
0: Yes, exactly. Um, mm. I want to touch on birds before we go to private and community based solutions. Um, I know that people in Victoria, in particular, who have been living in lockdown for so long, have been appreciating nature more and noticing the changes and differences in their environment, whether it's in their backyard or in their local parks, in their local golf courses. Um, and one of the, uh, the one of the really interesting things was that um, a particular species of bird, not just one, but this one in particular, I'm thinking of the glossy black cockatoo was sighted in Melbourne. And um, they haven't been seen there for over 150 years. And there are species that um, have been residing a, um, on Kangaroo Island uh, as one of the places that um, they really live. But I wanted to ask about these cockatoos and not just the, those cockatoos, of course, the red-tailed cockatoos um, that have been seen. Um, out and about and that have also been under threat and that we're seeing more and more of these um, birds pop up in areas that they hadn't been seen before, migratory birds as well, um, and how they had been affected because, you know, if we have an El Niña event um, with flooding, birds are more likely to escape that situation. But when we see fires um, like the ones that we did see uh, mm. over the summer, birds are just one group um, that had just been so severely affected
3: yeah yeah absolutely and and look you know there's a, a I suppose a mixed um, uh, feeling about the the sighting of, of glossy blacks in Melbourne clearly they're under a lot of environmental stress uh, and then they're, they're moving around the loss of habitat will cause occasionally you know birds like that to appear in places that are not anticipated. That is not to say that the um that the increase in fascinating and wonderful backyard bird sightings around Melbourne is a negative thing in general. In general, it's a very positive thing. Uh, it, it is true that, the efforts that people go to in their backyards, in parks to put the right kinds of vegetation back or just even more vegetation. It doesn't necessarily sh- have to strictly be native vegetation. Um, but getting those, getting that vegetation back into our suburbs, back into our, our backyards is a wonderful way to help bolster uh, nature and help keep species going. You'll get all sorts of wonderful birds uh, you know, coming into Melbourne, if we can make Melbourne a really, really green city and if we can focus our um, our planning and our urban design around bringing uh, natural habitats back into Melbourne. So, yeah, but for for some species, uh, yes, we have a lot of pressure on them. Uh, we've had years of, of drought, then the fires. We still have quite a lot of... Uh, should we say? Uh, dubious self-assessed land clearing going on, which is one of the major problems Mm. with our uh, EPBC Act, our our national legislation, is that we're starting to move more and more into self-assessment, which inevitably leads to um, more bad outcomes. A lot of people do the right thing, but it only takes a few people to not do the right thing uh, or not even know that they're doing the wrong thing. And suddenly we're seeing the loss of critical habitat elements through. Um, not just out in the agricultural zone, in the rural zone, but but also on the fringes of cities. These big old trees uh, that are so crucial for the persistence of species like glossy blacks uh, and red-tailed glossy blacks. You know, we have to we have to um, keep these critical habitat elements in the landscapes as well including in the suburbs, if we're going to be able to continue to enjoy seeing these species and perhaps perhaps in five years we'll feel overjoyed uh, when we find a, a red-tailed glossy in our uh, backyards in Melbourne.
0: Mm, I hope it will be a joyful experience. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I, I've been enjoying the songs so much. It's really made my day so many times to listen to them, particularly when the sun is setting and they're all coming out together. It's a beautiful sound. Um, And I should mention that the Aussie Backyard Bird Count is starting on the 19th of October and it's being run by BirdLife Australia and you can um, join in and find out all the information at aussiebirdcount.org.au and it starts in five days, 12 hours, 10 minutes and five seconds according to their website. (laughs)
3: That's great. So get ready. Yeah, Yeah, do it. (laughs) It's a it. It couldn't be a more therapeutic uh, COVID activity apart mm-hmm. from the lifting of restrictions. That is so. Yeah, I absolutely agree. Get get out and get involved in the Aussie backyard bird count. Uh, you can even look at the results from last year. And if you're a, you know a numbers geek or you're, you're the sort of person that measures how much rainfall we got uh, over the past twenty four hours, then you're going to love the Aussie backyard bird count.
0: Yep. So fun. Can't wait. Um, and uh, yeah, I hope people can maybe tweet us and let, let me know if you do take part and whether you see any exciting birds. Um, one of the things that I have mentioned and you've also brought up is um, these private conservation properties and um, individuals and groups who have put funding into, philanthropic funding into conservation. Um, Mm. And they work with community groups and they also work with scientists um, from institutions like universities Mm. in order to protect particular species. Um, And one of those that you did mention was Mount Rothwell, which is kind of near Little River. Um, which is near the Yu Yangs, and it's a gorgeous area. It is um very poetic in, at sunset, mm-hmm. um with these gorgeous grasslands and other um other environmental elements to it. But mm-hmm. I wanted to ask about that project and maybe any others that you think are important, and mm-hmm. how they contribute to conservation. Um, because I know that they've really looked at species um, that include quolls, uh, which are really gorgeous and really cute. And they've they've done so by creating these kind of habitat areas that are predator free, that don't, yeah. they don't have foxes. Um, for example, they don't have uh, domestic cats mm-hmm. trying to kill various um, wildlife. And what are your thoughts on these types of sanctuaries that are created by private landholders and philanthropists and what kind of role can they have in terms of protecting mammals, for example, like the ones that you've just um, mentioned in terms of the rock wallabies?
3: Yeah, absolutely. These are crucial, of course. Um, And look, it was even referenced in the Global Biodiversity Outlook how important these I guess, particularly intensive conservation actions are for uh, maintaining species. There are probably 40, mm, 30 to 40 small mammals in Australia, species like um, uh, eastern barred bandicoots and um, bettongs and bilbies and things like that that are really susceptible to predation from cats and foxes that just wouldn't exist uh, anymore if we didn't have these um, amazing fenced conservation reserves. So Mount Rothwell, I think, was the first uh, fenced conservation reserve, predator-proof pr- predator fence in Australia. Um, trying to remember if the name of the... Rather charismatic gentleman, John Walmsley. His name was. He he went into uh, Parliament House with a catskin hat on um, yeah. back in the back in the day. That would have been in the eighties, I think. And he set up Mount Rothwell, uh, and that now is a is a wonderful um, conservation reserve. You could, if we if we we're allowed to go to Golden Blanes this year, you could drop in on your way out there on the way back and have some therapy with um, with some eastern Bard bandicoots or some spotted quails. Um, brush-tailed rock wallabies, uh, these are the sorts of species that really probably wouldn't exist in Australia now were it not for these kinds of reserves. And they're so much better than zoos. You know, there's there's, uh, the Australian Wildlife Conservancy that sort of specialises in these fenced areas, uh, has around 6.5 million hectares. uh, of reserve uh, across the country Uh, and this is you know really crucial for a whole bunch of species but they're also amazing places like you can go visit one of these fenced areas and there's small mammals uh, running around all over the place I I went to one called Scotia Reserve uh, up um, not far from Mildura uh, about a year and a half ago and and the ground feels different these little um, mammals can turn over upwards of 10 tonnes of soil per year. So it's beautiful aerated, turned over soil. Um, it's great for, for uh, the germination and development of the plants in the area. Uh, and, you know, they, they, they're they called ecosystem engineers, these little mammals. They're just amazing. And, um, and so the environments where we've kept the predators out, we have many of these uh, small mammals existing, are different they feel different you feel like you can be walking back into a sort of a pre-european um environment and uh and it's uh, it's a wonderful experience so if you do get a chance to go to an Australian Wildlife Conservancy Reserve or out to Mount Rothwell indeed uh then you know please do it's it's a, it's a wonderful experience and Mount Rothwell's also really interesting because they are developing a um a, an Eastern Barred Bandicoot um if you like genetic rescue program so there were Eastern Barred Bandicoots uh, around Hamilton uh that Uh, reached critically low levels until they were taken into captivity and and then the breeding population in captivity of victorian eastern bards uh is you know was not doing very well and they've just started crossing them with some tasmanian um uh, bard bandicoots and they're getting wonderful results so there's um and this is a program that's being run uh out of um out of uh, Mount Rothwell, and it's a, it's a really uh, cutting edge science endeavour as well as a critical conservation effort. So so that's um, pretty cool stuff that's happening there. But these private conservation areas, Bush Heritage Australia, is a wonderful. Uh, group that that focuses more on ecosystem uh, restoration and they don't necessarily do fenced reserves so much but they do ecosystem restoration if you have a chance ever to get up to Nardu Hills which is sort of west of Bendigo uh, they've got a wonderful conservation reserve up there Uh, they're they're restoring the uh, grassy woodlands up there which is an endangered ecosystem and there's great Animals up there that are threatened. Swift parrots use their um, use the Nardoo Hills um, woodlands. They just recently uh, rediscovered a greenhood orchid up there that had been thought to be extinct for about sixty years. So, um, so Bush Heritage Australia, another organisation with properties all over the country, uh, that relies on private donations uh, to exist, they are creating. Uh, wonderful, functioning, healthy uh, ecosystems and they work uh, incredibly closely with um, traditional owners and in Indigenous land managers across the country with some really inspiring programs. So um, so Bush Heritage as well, hats off to the work that they're doing. These are crucial organisations that we couldn't do without. But it is worth remembering that they still take up about 1% or less of our total land mass and represent around 6% of our conservation estate compared with Indigenous protected areas that represent about 44% of our conservation estate. So Indigenous land managers um, across the country, including um, Indigenous protected areas and ranger groups, are actually doing more by area for uh, Australian conservation than our than our national park system. Mm. so um, so it's really, uh, you know in a way, I think not very well understood feature of our conservation in Australia is just how important um, Indigenous land management is for the conservation of Australia and I could go on for hours about some (laughs) wonderful projects and I realise you've probably got other people you need to talk to today Amy.
0: Oh, uh, Dave Graney might get a bit annoyed at me if I go over (laughs) so I better not (laughs) Um, but I do want to say a great uh, a massive thank you to you because it's been once again an absolute joy to talk with you even about some things which are quite dire which is an understatement Mm. Um, as you said we are in a global um, biodiversity crisis and uh, locally Australia unfortunately is one of the worst offenders so um, it's important to know that but also important to know what you've just said which is there are groups individuals and um, ways for us to move forward without government and of course if government want to also move that's excellent but we don't have to wait around for them to do something about it so i'm really grateful to you um for your generosity and your great intellect and passion
3: oh uh, thanks sammy it's always great to talk and look I, you know i guess very last sliver is that these are these are big organizations there's also community groups and you can get out and join the mary creek management group and you, you um you benefit from from that group uh when you get to go into the studio amy um these are incredible what these groups do the mary creek group has done incredible things over the last 40 years so it's not all about these iconic um big conservation organizations it's also what you can do in your own community so um so yeah get out and Get inspired and do the Aussie bird count, and join your local community group, and and uh, yeah, you'll you'll be uh, you'll enjoy it and be very satisfied by the experience you have. I reckon
0: you sure will. Thanks so much, Brendan, and uh, hope you have a great week.
3: Ripper, thanks, Amy. See you soon.
0: I'm Amy Mullins, and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast.